so as our kids are leaving, maybe you should be jealous of them this morning. Um, I mean, you're probably jealous of them every week because they get like a nice short 10 minute, 10 minute lesson from Pastor Holly, which is probably more concise than what you get from me. So uh, maybe you're jealous of them. But in case you're curious this morning, if you're a little chilly in this room, all three furnaces that facilitate this room went out this morning at some point. So um, sorry about that. So sit closer to your neighbor if you know them well. If you don't know them well, get to know them well. Um, There are moments in life when we choose to make decisions or choose to not make decisions that have pretty radical impacts on our life, right? Sometimes, how many of us, if we're honest, we think about moments like you passed on doing something that you thought you probably should have, and you didn't do it. And how many of us look back and go, oh, if I had just done that, whatever that was, it would have been better. And I know I should have, but I didn't. I mean, the same was true for a guy named Peter Parker. And yes, I am talking about that Peter Parker. You know, the one that's Spider-Man. It's like a whole new, new movie came out. Haven't seen it. But, right, if you don't know the story of Peter Parker, Peter Parker got his superpowers as Spider-Man. And um, he was trying to make some money for his family. And he went and he competed in this wrestling tournament. And he was supposed to win at, like, the third round. And he won too quickly. And so afterward, he went to the promoter to get his money. Supposed to be like three thousand dollars, and the guy gave him a hundred bucks. And he goes, "What? What are you doing? You're like twenty nine hundred short." And he goes, "Hey, I told you third round to throw that to win in the third round. You won too fast. Sorry." Peter goes, "I needed that money." And the guy responds, "Not my problem." Well, fast forward a few minutes, and if you're watching the film, I don't know about the comics, I, I haven't read those, but in the film, like, what happens next is a thief shows up in the room where the promoter is and steals all the money and runs to the elevator where Peter Parker is standing, and the thief gets there, and Peter could have easily done something to stop him, and he doesn't. He lets the guy get in the elevator, the security guard goes, what are you doing? You could have stopped him, and then the promoter shows up, and he says, what? You could have easily taken that guy, and he looks at the promoter, and he goes, not my problem. And you think it's kind of this funny gotcha scene, except what happens next. Peter is walking home, and he sees this crowd of people, and he sees this guy laying on the ground. It happens to be his Uncle Ben. His Uncle Ben's been carjacked and shot, and he dies. Only for Peter to find out that the guy he didn't stop at the elevator when he could have is the same guy who killed his uncle. Now it's his problem. Right? That's a fictitious story, it's not real, but I can't help but think for many of us, that's kind of how life is. Not my problem until it is. Not my deal, not my issue, not my thing, not, not for me to take care of, right? What are the things that we could have done? We could have forgiven someone and chose not to. We could have helped someone but abstained. We could have modeled generosity or any number of other things. We could have done this or that and uh, not my problem. So I do nothing. But here's the problem for us. These moments that are not my problem, moments that we don't take care of, sometimes have impact on our life because we go, that wasn't really my issue, but it ended up impacting me in a way I never saw coming. And our life is defined over and over again by all the decisions that we make. They reveal our character. They reveal our integrity. The decisions we make when no one is looking, those things reveal who we really are. We're kind of wrestling in the office, like, what does it mean to say you're defined by your decisions? Or are you defined by your decisions? Here's what I would say. 
All of our decisions in our life have shaped us to where we are today. Now, they don't have to be the defining future of our lives either. But they do reveal our heart. They reveal who we are. They reveal how we live. And so we've been talking about the way in which, what's it look like for us to recognize that, especially in the Old Testament, there are flawed heroes. Spider-Man, flawed hero. Not my problem until it was. Last week we talked about Abraham, and he had lots of flaws in his life. But when push came to shove, he chose rightly. It wasn't perfect. And so we're not looking at Abraham again today, but we're looking at the story of Joseph. And it's a long story. And if you want to open your Bible, good luck keeping up with me, because we're going to look at like six or seven different texts. Um, but you can try. Um, they'll be on the screen, if not, and you can follow along with me. It's like eight chapters in Genesis, so we'll try, right? But... But, but Joseph's story is an interesting one, right? So we know about Abraham, and then he has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob gets a new name named Israel because Jacob wrestled with God, but he also was kind of like conniving and stole his brother's birthright. Like, it's a whole messed up long story. You think your family's bad? Read their story. But Jacob goes to this guy named Laban, and he begins to work for him, and he falls in love with a woman named Rachel, and he wants to marry her. Kind of what happens usually when you fall in love with someone. And, and um, Laban says, sure, it works seven years for me, and you can marry my daughter, Rachel. Laban thought seven years felt like nothing because he was so in love. Except when he got married, I don't understand how this part of the story works, whole other conversation, um, finds out the next day after the wedding that Rachel is not Rachel, it's Leah, her sister, because she was older. And so Laban says, well, you know, here's how this works. You have to get the older one first, Sorry. But if you work seven more years, you can have Rachel too. Whole different world, not trying to defend it, but just the reality of the world, right? So he works seven more years, so 14 years to have Rachel and Leah. So now here's the problem that you can imagine is going to happen. If you want to marry one sister and you get stuck with the other one, you're probably going to have a favorite. So I just marry one. Much better idea. And Jacob does. He has a favorite. It's Rachel. Rachel doesn't seem to get pregnant. Leah has babies. He has babies by two other women. He's married in a whole other culture, right? Um, and finally, Rachel has a baby boy. And his name is Joseph. And he is his dad's favorite. Because it's from his favorite wife. And here's where we pick up the story. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, okay, he's a teenager, keep that in mind, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. So he tattles on his brothers, okay. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Bad parenting. Because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? 
And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well, all his, his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now you notice, Joseph didn't necessarily do anything wrong to his brothers. Um, he tattled on them, but it was probably telling the truth of what was actually happening. It was a, not a good report. He didn't do anything wrong by telling them about his dreams. That's not really wrong. Not wise, but not wrong. Right? He's like, hey, basically, I'm better than you, just so you know. You can imagine an arrogant 17-year-old. Not only is he an arrogant 17-year-old, um, but he's dad's favorite. And who gets the new clothes? Not the older brothers. They didn't get an ornate robe. Like, their robes are not described. Only Joseph gets that. Tattletale, dad's favorite, new clothes. It's not going well already, you can imagine, but you can see what happens next, and here's what we find. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Really good brothers. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robes, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine to see whether it is your son's robe. You notice they say your son's robe, not our brother's. He recognized it and said, It's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Joseph's arrogance, his decision-making as a teenager, choosing to speak when he probably should have stayed silent, 
didn't do anything wrong, not my problem, but it became his problem by the decision of others. How many of us have said something like this? Like, I, I didn't do anything, they did. I didn't do that. I didn't do, or I said, I only said, and our culpability, we, we're pretty quick to deflect, 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 man, deflect blame, right? Have you done that? I have. But then we begin to see Joseph's story as one story in which what we find is that God doesn't cause bad things to happen in our lives, but he can redeem the broken things that have happened. And we see that continue in Joseph's story, reading on. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time on, he put him in in charge of his household and everything he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So Joseph has gone from being thrown in a cistern, being sold into slavery, being bought as a slave, and now, in the middle of all that, he's found the life finally of some meaning and some value again after having been enslaved. But then we see what happens next. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Not good to look good when your master's not home a lot. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not have to concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties. None of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. It's like a reality TV show. Did you notice that Joseph did his best work not for his own recognition, but for his master's recognition? Everything that Potiphar's house would have flourished, Potiphar would have gotten all the credit, not Joseph. The question I have for you and I is, do we do our best work for the sake of others? Are we concerned about whether or not we get the glory for the work that we do? I think it's an honest question we wrestle with, right? Are we concerned about our own glory? Or do we recognize that that the work itself is the act of worship? Joseph goes from the arrogant teenager to a person who learns humility. And see, here's the problem with humility. We learn humility um, by becoming more humble or we learn humility by being humiliated. 
And Joseph's story is both. Can it be more humiliating than being the favorite child, stripped of your clothing, thrown in a well, and sold into slavery? It's humiliating. But there's a humility to Joseph that recognizes that God has blessed what he's doing, and he would sin against God, and I'm not going to do that, no matter who you are. And so he flees from Potiphar's wife. But the second thing I want us to not miss is when Joseph, Joseph faced a temptation, he did what all of us should do. When we are confronted by a temptation, whatever that temptation is, our best defense is just to run. Our best response to any temptation in life is to run the other direction. Maybe literally run. Right, whatever it is you struggle with in life, right, whatever the struggle is, if we have an addiction, and there are places we do not go, and we turn around and walk the other way. If it's to an electronic device, all kinds of things we can be addicted to on those, even the device itself, sometimes we have to put it down or get rid of it or move the other way. Whatever it is, we have to turn and run the other direction because otherwise, if we just dwell on that temptation, we'll find that we're drawn in. And Joseph knew himself enough to know that I've got to run the other direction. And so we begin to see Joseph's character is being shaped and changing. Because character is seen when no one is watching and it may cost you something. No one would have known if Joseph went to bed with Potiphar's wife. There was no one else there. But Joseph would have known. And who he desired to be would have no longer been who he was. It was a decision. It was a defining moment in his life. And he wasn't going to make that decision again. Joseph did the right thing. Joseph honored his boss. And he honored God. And it cost him everything. So what happens? Potiphar comes home. Wife says, hey, um, look, I've got his clothing. He came on to me. What are you going to do about it? So Potiphar's like, man, this guy was such a great employee, but this is flying too far. You're out. He throws him in prison, in the Pharaoh's prison. But in the middle of that, I want us to not miss something. Where Joseph goes, he's been humiliated again. But the important thing for us is this. There is no place that you or I can go. There's no place we go where the presence of God is not already There is nowhere you and I go that we have to worry about whether God is present or not. And so Joseph's in prison. The warden begins to take notice of him, and he begins to, to, to bless him even in the prison. And so Joseph finds himself in charge of the other inmates. And so he's there and doing all these things. And, and um, then two of Pharaoh's officials get sent to prison, the cupbearer and the baker. And cupbearers are kind of a big deal in the ancient world. And you're like, why is a cupbearer? Like, they carry the cup. Yeah, but they would take the drink first to make sure that Pharaoh didn't die. So it's kind of a dangerous job. Like, you know, I mean, you just take sips, but if you died, then obviously we need a new cupbearer, not a new Pharaoh. So that's how that works. So the baker and the cupbearer are there. The cupbearer, they have these dreams, and they're kind of distraught. And Joseph sees their distress, and he says to them, hey, um, what's going on with you guys? Like, normally you look a little different than you do today. The cupbearer says, well, I had this dream. In my dream, there was this, there were these vines, these three vines, and and the three vine branches, and I, I was kind of smashing grapes into the cup so that Pharaoh could have a drink, and I took the cup, and I gave it to Pharaoh, and he took a drink of it, and I, I just don't know what men, I just had this weird dream, and I, I can't figure out what it means, and Joseph goes, well, here, I can tell you what it means. So, three vines, those are three days. 
And in three days, you're going to be restored to your position with Pharaoh, and you're going to keep handing him your cup. It's like, oh, sweet. I like this dream. So the baker hears this dream and goes, well, then I'm going to tell you my dream for sure, because if he got good news, mine's probably going to be good too. So here's my dream. On my head, I had three baskets of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds kept eating them. Um, they kept eating the baked goods on my head. And that, that's the dream. So what, what's that mean? And Joseph says, well, i got bad news for you. You probably shouldn't have asked me what that dream meant. Here's what it means. Um, in three days, you're going to have your head taken from you. And the birds are going to eat your flesh. All right, good talk. But Joseph said a line, though, to the cupbearer. He said, when you go to Pharaoh, remember me. Remember me. And the question I have for you and I, because the cupbearer goes to Pharaoh, and he doesn't remember him. For you and I, the question is this. How many times have we done something for someone? Have we gone out of our way, and they didn't even say thank you? They didn't even say thank you for what we did. Joseph is blessed with wisdom in the middle of all that's going on in all his circumstances. In prison, he gives good news to the cupbearer. You would think you would remember in prison, but he doesn't. But here's why I think it matters. Character doesn't keep score. And integrity doesn't quit. Those moments when you and I have done the right thing and no one thinks us, we did it for the right reasons, it doesn't really matter. Because it's what we're supposed to do, if it's who we are. And if we're looking for the accolade, then we might need to check our own hearts about why we do what we do. So here's Joseph in prison, and it's a full two years after he's talked to the cupbearer. Cupbearer has been restored to Pharaoh. He's working in the palace. He would have a position of authority, right? In two years, he doesn't remember Joseph until Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has this kind of weird dream, right? It it's involves cow and cows and wheat. And so here's how it works, right? There's this dream. The first dream, there's seven cows, healthy, good-looking cows, what cows should look like, who are grazing. And then these seven skinny, ugly cows, right? Cows are not supposed to be skinny. If they're skinny, it's not good. You want fat cows, right? That's kind of the goal. Well, the skinny cows eat the fat cows. The seven skinny eat the seven fat, and they're still skinny. The other part of the dream is there's this beautiful, like, grain that grows. These seven seven grains grow up, and then they're swallowed by seven weak or thin-looking pieces of grain, and you're like, huh, that's weird. The healthy stuff swallowed by the the unhealthy stuff. And so Pharaoh has this dream and he can't shake the dream and he invites his magicians and wise men and all the people to come and give him answer what this is. And finally the cupbearer says, hey, um, there was this guy in prison. He was pretty good at answering dreams. In fact, he nailed it. Remember my, like I was there. I, mean, I don't remember too much about me being there because I don't want to go there again, but you put me there and the baker, do you remember the baker, you know, the one you had killed, that guy? He knew our dreams, and he was right. And Pharaoh says, well, go get him. And then I don't want you to miss this singular verse from chapter 41, verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, 
lest you and I forget Joseph was in prison. Lest we forget that he would not have been looking good or smelling good. He was so bad that they wouldn't even let him go before Pharaoh until these things had happened. And yet in the middle of these things, he still trusted God. Because he knew who he was. Because his character mattered. His integrity mattered to him. And Joseph stands before Pharaoh, and he has nothing left to prove. He has been humiliated more than he could ever be humiliated again. He has nothing to prove, even to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says this, I know one who can answer your dream. I'm sorry, Joseph says, I know one who can answer your dream. God can answer your dream. And so whatever I tell you only comes from him. And he answers, Pharaoh, here's what your dream means. All right, the seven good cows, that's seven years of plenty. Seven bad cows, that's seven years of famine. Same thing for the grain, same story. Seven years of plenty, seven years of not. And he says, here, I tell you what, what would be wise, Pharaoh would be wise to maybe think about this. For the first seven years, take one-fifth of everything, all the grain that you can, and store it away. And then when the seven years of little is there, you'll have more than enough. And so Pharaoh goes, Seems like a good plan. In fact, here's what Pharaoh says. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, Make way, Thus, he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph never cursed God. I'm sure he was angry with him, but he put his faith in him, and he trusted in the goodness of God. Just like Joseph's story, our mistakes, not my problems of our life, they do have consequences. Sometimes there are devastating consequences, sometimes not so much. But this story is a reminder there's nothing so broken in our life, no decision we have made that God can't redeem and restore in some way, shape, or form. It's why Paul would write later about in the book of Romans that God works all things for the good of those who love him. It's not that God does all good things for you. But God can take the decisions you and I have made and he can redeem them and take what seems to be so broken and beyond repair and make them right. It doesn't mean God doesn't let bad things happen or us make poor decisions because you and I have probably lived enough to have made plenty of poor decisions that we regret. But what Paul wants us to know is this, that that doesn't have to define your life. Those decisions you and I have made, they do not have to be the defining characteristics of our life. Our character and our integrity are not defined by a singular decision or two. All the little decisions you and I make for our whole life, which ones are going to weigh out and win in the end? And God can use our broken experiences, and he can redeem them, and he can restore them. And Joseph goes from prison 
The dungeon, it says, to being the most powerful man in Egypt besides Pharaoh. Huh. Here's what we see next. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Right? Did you catch that? All the world came to Joseph, the slave, Joseph, the arrogant teenager, Joseph, dad's favorite, Joseph, the one who'd been in prison, Joseph, the one accused of trying to sleep with his boss's wife, Joseph, all the world comes to Joseph. And Joseph finally probably feels like life is working out for me. And that would be a good end of the story, except that's not the end of the story. The whole world was coming to Egypt. And then his brothers show up because they're hungry too. These same brothers who hated him, who plotted how to have him killed, who thought he was worthless and despised how their dad loved him, They come, and they come to Egypt, and they come to him, and he could do anything he wants to do to them, anything. And they bow before him. He calls them spies. I'm not, I mean, I don't know if that was kind of getting even or not. That's a whole other conversation. But he also learns he has another brother he's never met named Benjamin from his mom, Rachel. And Joseph concocts a plan to meet his other brother. Holds him in captivity for three days in custody. And I can only imagine what you would want to do, but here's what we see happens. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. His brothers acknowledge we never should have done what we did. And Joseph can do anything he wants to do, and he does something that doesn't make sense. He fills their bags with the silver they used to pay for their grain. And he sends them on their way. Right? I don't, I don't know if we, you and I understand this well enough. Um, especially in the ancient world, retribution was the only form of justice people practiced. Getting even. Retributive justice, an eye for an eye. And Joseph practices one of the first examples we ever see of this in the scriptures. Restorative justice, which is the justice of God. And Joseph models for us the actual 
grace of Jesus in this very scene, when he could do anything he wants to do, he could get even, and he wouldn't be wrong by anything in his culture he chooses not to. He models the very character and nature of God. Retribution never wins in the end. Retribution is never how God desires for us to live. Retribution is not right. Restorative is the way of God. The brothers arrive home. They see they've got all their silver. They're kind of worried. They're like, we're never going to get our brother back. We left one there. And Jacob, the dad, is like, well, you're not going back to Egypt. I am not sending Benjamin there. I've lost one son. Now you left another one there. You're not going again. That's final. I mean, they're grown men, by the way. They're not like little five-year-old kids. Like me tell my 11-year-old son, you're not doing that. It's final. He's going, okay, your dad. Like my 31-year-old son, which I don't have, right? Then he'd be like, see you later. But dad tells him you're not going. But the famine is so severe, they're starving. And Jacob knows that if I don't do this, I'm literally going to lose my entire family. They're all going to die. And so he sends the brothers back to Egypt, this time with Benjamin. See, chapter 43, Joseph prepares a meal for them, brings them all, and gives, he gives Benjamin five times what everybody else gets, and he sits at the other table because it would have, it, Egyptians would have not sat with Israelites. This wouldn't have been appropriate. And then he sends them on their way, packs all their silver again with all their grain, and he does something that, I mean, it's a little bit kind of devious. He places his cup, his cup, into Benjamin's bag. And to take the master's cup would have been like symbolic of like spitting in their face. I mean, you just didn't do that. It just was everything about that. You would take the very cup that I drink from? What is wrong with you? And he throws it in Benjamin's bag. And then he sends his servant. And he gets to them and he says, after all my master's done for you, you would take his cup? What is wrong with you guys? And the brothers are like, no chance we would ever have done that. You can look on all our stuff. If you find that cup, you can take that brother back with you. And they open the bags, and sure enough, there in Benjamin's bag, we find the cup. And the brothers are freaked out now. Our dad's going to already, he's going to hate us. He doesn't know that we sold one son off to slavery who's probably dead now, and he's really going to hate us if this. He's like, ah. And so they run, and they plead their case to Joseph. They listen, if you do this, if, if you take this kid, if you keep him, our father will literally die. And then we see what happens next. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? For his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They're planning on retribution, not restoration. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. But don't be angry with yourselves. I forgive you. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great 
deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God takes the moments of our lives that seem to be so broken where nothing good can come from, and he brings something good out of them if we allow him to shape who we are, our character, and our integrity. The decisions we make when no one is watching have great impact on who we are. This story is a story of a God who is at work among his people. The story of Joseph is a story of redemption. It's a story of a God who desires to redeem our past mistakes, our not-my-problem moments. But Joseph's story also shows us that our character matters. When confronted with an opportunity to get even with those who had wronged him, he could have had Potiphar thrown in prison or Potiphar's wife. He could have done whatever he wanted to his brothers. He could have strung them up. He could have done anything to them, and they deserved it. He chose mercy and grace instead. What Joseph models for us, if we will spend more time with God, it will be more shaped in his image, and we'll learn to live into ways and systems that don't make sense in the world in which we live. And Joseph's character points forward to the character and integrity of Jesus, who offers you and I restoration and redemption in spite, in spite of our past, in spite of the decisions you and I have made. God can redeem and restore and make them new. And are you and I willing to believe there is a God who is present with us in the good times and the bad, just like Joseph? You and I are invited today to receive God's divine mercy. But there's a catch. Just like Joseph, we are called to be givers of God's divine mercy. Especially to those who don't deserve it. Why? It speaks to our character, not theirs. speaks to our character, not theirs. Today, God is wanting to redeem others' stories. And he is wanting to use you and I as his vessels of grace. Will we join him? Will we allow him to use us? Will we be people who, instead of a Practicing retribution, even when it's earned, will practice restoration with our lives. Will we be the vessels of God's grace? Will you and I, too, be flawed heroes used by God? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today for the way you draw us near, for the way you love us. As we pray to sing these words about in Christ alone that we find our hope, that maybe we would truly find our hope only in you, that your son desires to redeem and restore and make all things new. That today we might make decisions about our future, recognizing that our past decisions have had impact on how we got to where we are today. But our future doesn't have to be defined by those decisions we can come to know a God who redeems and restores and makes all things new and wants to bless our lives in a way we never thought possible. 
But the greatest blessing isn't we're going to have more stuff or more money or more whatever, but it's that we would come to know your presence more and more. And so, Father, we ask that you might come near to us in a way that only you can. We might know the depth of your love and your grace and your mercy. That we might know you in such a way that just like Joseph, when we have been wronged by others, we can respond with restorative grace and we can be vessels of your mercy and givers of your hope. We ask that we might too be like Jesus. That when people threw their worst at him, his words were, Father, forgive them. And we choose that as our way of life as well. And we know we cannot do it apart from you and the work of your spirit in our lives. And so we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.